Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. What are the biggest questions in life and which worldview best answers those questions? We're going to get back to what we discussed last week. We had part one last week and we're going to continue with part two this week. But before we do, I do want to talk a little bit about Charles Krauthammer, who uh, just died this week. Charles Krauthammer, a brilliant political mind, pundit, philosopher, historian who uh, was a regular columnist at the Washington Post, won Pulitzer Prizes, a psychiatrist, uh, and was on uh, the uh, panel at uh, the Fox News Channel during their their news program at 6 p.m. and always had a way of cutting to the truth uh, very succinctly. And uh, there's a a news story uh, that came out uh, when he died a couple of days ago called The Wisdom of Charles Krauthammer, and uh, it just has some of his quotes, and uh, I want to read a few of them here because uh, they're quite good, and uh, he's just somebody I admired as as someone who could calmly get to the point that he was trying to make clearly, and uh, here's one of his quotes. He said, I decided to become a writer so I could write about politics because I thought that's the most important thing one can involve oneself in. In the end, all the beautiful, elegant things in life, the things that I care about, the things that matter, depend on getting the politics right. Because in those societies where they get it wrong, everything else is destroyed, everything else is leveled, unquote. Now, from a a secular point of view, uh, politics quite obviously is important. It's also important from a a Christian's point of view as well, because what is decided politically affects our ability to preach and live the gospel. I mean, we take it for granted that we have religious, religious freedom in this country, which, by the way, is eroding, but we still have religious freedom in this country. Imagine if politically... Uh, religious freedom was ruled out like it is in some places like North Korea and Iran and Saudi Arabia and these kinds of places, China. You couldn't live out your faith like uh, like God wants you to live it out, at least not legally. You'd, you'd be persecuted a lot more in those countries if you tried to live it out. So politics is important to even the spread of the gospel. Uh, and and Kronhauer is right that if you get politics wrong, so many other areas of life are degraded. Now, I don't agree with him, obviously, that it's the most important thing one can involve oneself in. I think uh, God is the most important thing you can involve yourself in. But his, his point is well taken, that politics is important to the life certainly here we have on earth, because if you get that wrong, everything else will fall with it. Here's what he said about American exceptionalism. He said, America is the only country ever founded on an idea, the only country that is not founded on race or even common history. It's founded on an idea, and the idea is liberty. That is probably the rarest phenomenon in the political history of the world. This has never happened before, and not only has it happened, but it's worked. We are the most flourishing, the most powerful, the most influential country on earth with this system invented 
by the greatest political geniuses probably in human history, unquote. Hard to argue with what Krauthammer says there. Again, in America, we take all this for granted. We just think this is the way things are, that, that, that this is just the way things should be. Well, they, they, they should be that we have political freedom, but it's not the way things are around the world. And Krauthammer's pointing that out. We were born in this, and we just think, well, this is the way it is everywhere. No, it's not. Uh, here's what he says about um, about welfare, because Krauthammer grew up as a great society liberal. Uh, he was born in 1950. He went to Harvard. He was a Harvard-trained uh, psychiatrist. Despite the fact that at the age of 22, by the way, he hit his head on the bottom of a pool, and he became a quadriplegic. Many people don't know he was even in a wheelchair. But yes, he was in a wheelchair for the last uh, 40 or so years of his life, uh, 46 years of his life, I guess. And um, you wouldn't think so because he, he wouldn't let that define him. Uh, but anyway, here's what he said about, about uh, poverty programs. He said, quote, I was a great society liberal. I thought we ought to help the poor. We ought to give them all the money that we can. And then the evidence started to pour in. The evidence of how these grand programs, the poverty programs, the welfare programs, everything was making things worse. I didn't have a dog in that fight. I was willing to go where the evidence led. As a doctor, I'd been trained in empirical evidence. If the treatment is killing your patients, you stop the treatment, unquote. Well, exactly. This is not something that is up for debate. It shouldn't be anyway. If, if you throw a lot of money at people and make them dependent on that money, then in many cases, they're going to lose their ability to actually sustain themselves. They're going to be unmotivated, and they're going to, they're going to become uh, sloths, if, 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 if you want to use the biblical term. Now, I'm not saying this is true of everybody. Don't get me wrong. But as Krauthammer is saying, is that the evidence started to pour in, and this was happening to too many people. Now, again, this doesn't mean that you don't have a safety net. It doesn't mean safety net. It doesn't mean there aren't people out there who might need this kind of assistance, and there's no other way they could make it. Okay, that's good. The problem here, though, is that too many, for too many people, it becomes uh, almost paralyzing that they, they, they can't get out of this cycle of dependency, and that's what too many of these welfare programs do. And if you look at what has gone on, after 50 years of trying to fight poverty through those programs, poverty is no better. We still have about the same level of poverty as we did in 1965. Uh, he also uh, said this about persuading others. Quote, this is again from Charles Krauthammer. And by the way, this article, if you want to read it, these quotes, it's called, what is it? The Wisdom of Charles Krauthammer. It's on Fox News. You can go up and you just Google it. You'll find it. Uh, here's what he said about um, uh, the right words matter. Uh, playwright Tom Stoppard once said the reason he writes is because every once in a while you put a few words together in the right order and you're able to give the world a nudge. Sometimes I'm able to do that, unquote. Well, we're supposed to do that from a biblical perspective. We're trying to we're trying to bring all nations or go to all nations and make disciples of all nations. We want to make people followers of Christ. And sometimes you have to do that with words. <laughs> you have to do that and give people a nudge. Krauthammer said this about persuading others. He said, you don't want to talk in highfalutin, ridiculous abstractions that nobody understands. Just try to make things plain and clear. I try and do that. I don't know if I'm always successful, but I, I, I try to 
to stay away from uh, the highfalutin language and the technical language. I'm trying to make things as clear as possible. Why? Because that's the only way I can understand it. I have to boil it down for myself, and I want to then communicate that to other people. Here's what uh, Krauthammer also says. He says, the one thing I try to do when I want to persuade someone is never start with my assumptions, because if I do, we're not going to get anywhere. You have to figure out what the other person believes and then draw a line from what they believe into what you believe in by showing them a logical sequence. But you've got to lead them along and you have to have it clear in your head from the beginning or you'll you'll never get there, unquote. That's certainly true as well. How how often do we um, start with our own assumptions rather than someone else's assumptions? That's why the, 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 the questions that we like to ask that Greg Kokel says in his book, Tactics Are So Effective, and I agree with him. You want to ask questions, well, what do you mean by that? And how'd you come to that conclusion? Try and uncover the assumptions of what someone says. And then you reason from what they say, that common ground, to what you're trying to show them. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to get people uh, sometimes to accept your worldview uh, without them first doubting their own worldview. And sometimes in order for them to doubt their own worldview, you have to uncover the assumptions that they have in their worldview and show them why they might not be good assumptions. Uh, So you always want to try and use common ground to move people from where they are to where you want them to be. And this is what Krauthammer is saying, how to persuade others. Now, this is especially critical on the big questions of life. And we're going to get to more of those big questions of life and here in just a few minutes, we'll talk a little bit more about Crowdhammer, and then we'll get to some of those questions. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, our website, crossexamined.org. We're back in two minutes. The big questions in life, what are they, and which worldview best answers them? We're talking about those questions Uh, Here We talked about it last week. We're going to talk about it this week again here on the radio program and the podcast. Before we do, we're talking uh, about Charles Krauthammer, the uh, the very uh, intelligent and succinct political writer and pundit who just died this week. We're talking about some of his uh, wisdom that he's put forth uh, before we talk about the big questions. And uh, in fact, at the end of this, Krauthammer thought he had put his finger on what the big questions are. We'll talk about that. But let me, let me give you a few more quotes from Krauthammer talking about how individuals make a difference. He says, in our sophisticated historical analyses, we tend to attribute everything to these large underlying currents, to certain political ideologies or social change like industrialization or the growth of women's rights and all that. But that's missing the obvious. There's usually a person who influenced things in a way that all the underlying forces cannot account for. In American history, there's Washington, Lincoln, FDR, Reagan. They all stand out. It's a way of looking at history that's less abstract, and it's more recognizing the individual, which we tend not to do, unquote. That certainly is true, which means, ladies and gentlemen, that you can make a difference as a person, despite the fact that you think you might not have very much control. You can make a difference. In fact, if you look at the Bible, if you look at what goes on in the Bible, God uses people of seemingly very low social status to do big things. It's, it's said over and over again. I mean, Moses was born into a royal family, but then he shunned all that and just became a sheep herder, basically, and God used him. 
God used him in a big way. Uh, the many of the disciples were just fishermen. They were they were no they weren't Roman emperors. <laughs> they they weren't people of prominence in that regard. Uh, Jesus himself, if you look at Jesus's life, there's a famous there's a famous uh, sermon. There's a very short sermon done many years ago uh, that when you read it you realize that Jesus, by earthly standards, uh, was was nothing that would normally give him such influence that he had. I'm trying to look for this thing. We, ha- we have this. It's called The One Solitary Life. I don't know if you've ever heard of that sermon. We have it in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And the sermon literally is, you know, two minutes long. It's not a, uh, it's not a huge... Um, Maybe I'll find it at the break and read it to you because it's it's very short. And anyway, the, the the point was was that God can work through individuals and does work through individuals. And this is the point that Krauthammer is making: that people uh, can do great and big things and move entire countries, maybe the entire world, uh, as an individual. In fact, I found it. It's on page 324 of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Listen to this. This is about Jesus. It's about our Savior. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in this big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did, not, he did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. When he was only 33, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he's the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies uh, armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life, unquote. One man. Now, what we say here in the book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, is if there was no resurrection... How could this life be the most influential life of all time? We don't have enough faith to believe that this one solitary life from a remote ancient village could be the most influential life of all time unless the resurrection is true. Which leads me to my next, next quote by Charles Krauthammer, who was not a Christian, by the way. I don't know if he if he was at the very end, but he, he wasn't. He was... He was uh, ethnically Jewish, and he wasn't. He didn't consider himself a religious person. But here's what he said about faith. He said, faith is something that one has or doesn't have. One doesn't construct it. The one thing I do believe is that of all the possible views of God, atheism is the least plausible. The idea that there's no meaning or purpose or origin, that the universe is, as it always was, is to me entirely implausible for reasons of physics, apart from faith. Because if you reason back to first causes, and if you're an atheist, you get to a logical contradiction, unquote. 
That's Charles Krauthammer. He's absolutely right about that. The universe had a beginning. Energy had a beginning. Time had a beginning. And it needs to be sustained right now, as a matter of fact. The natural laws which keep the universe going. We talked about this last week. Krauthammer is right about that. Now, this did not lead Krauthammer apparently to make whatever caused the universe his object of worship. I could be wrong about that. I hope I am. But what he did say more recently, well, it's hard to say this is more recently. I'm going now to an article written by a colleague of his, a lady by the name of A.B. Stoddard, who is, was also on the panel uh, on the news program at Fox uh, News Channel with him for many years. And uh, the, the article, which you can look up as well, it's from June 15th, is called The Unconfined Life of Charles Krauthammer. And here's how it starts. Charles Krauthammer once told me, quote, the way I look at life is that it's all an accident, everything, unquote. Now, I don't know if he was using that as a metaphor for his own accident that he had at, in the swimming pool when he was 22 years old. Um, or but that was a philosophy that caused him to say, well, it was just an accident, so I'm not going to take any, any more significance from it than that. Maybe that's the case. But this is the same man that wrote, wrote the book, The Things That Matter, which apparently uh, is a very good book. I haven't read it myself, but it's a New York Times bestseller. And I can understand why it, it had, has, has done very well, because Krauthammer, as I said before, was such a, a wonderful intellect who eloquently put things succinctly. But to say that, to have a book titled The Things That Matter, when you're saying, on the other hand, that everything is an accident, um, everything is an accident, then nothing really matters then. I mean, it seems to be a contradiction in my mind. That's why, to give Krauthammer the benefit of the doubt, I, 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 I'm not sure he meant it in the sense I might be taking it uh, when this lady, A.B. Stoddard, is quoting him. Because <laughs> to say that everything is an accident, but then there are things that matter, that's, that's obviously contradictory. Uh, one is nihilistic to say that everything is an accident and there is no meaning or purpose. And the other is saying, no, there's really things that do matter. And in his view, it was politics. As we said earlier, politics does matter. It even matters to the gospel. Uh, but you can't have it both ways. Either things matter or they don't. So hopefully, uh, Charles Krauthammer um, came to the realization in, in the last days that the ultimate thing that matters is God and his sacrifice that he provided for all of us. Uh, we don't know, obviously, if he came to that conclusion or not, but let me just say that I enjoyed listening to Krauthammer. He was a brilliant intellect, and I just love the way he put things succinctly. And let me agree with him. Things do matter. Uh, unfortunately, uh, and, and he, as I mentioned earlier, said atheism was illogical, Unfortunately, atheists, on one hand, will say things don't matter, everything's an accident, but on the other hand, there are things that do matter. <laughs> we talked about this last week. So if you want to see what we said about it, listen to last week's podcast. Let's now talk about some of the other big questions in life. Last week, we talked about why does anything exist? Why is there a universe? Does God exist? What, what kind of God exists? And if there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing? We also talked about, do you have to investigate every religion to discover which one, if any, are true? We also discussed, why is the universe so orderly? And where did the laws of nature come from? Because you see, 
atheists will say, well, everything's happened by natural law. Well, that begs the question, where did natural law come from? How do, it, 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 laws come from lawgivers. <laughs> so why is this universe so orderly and so precise? We discussed that last week. Let's now talk about why is the universe fine-tuned, which is part of this idea that the universe is precise and orderly. Why is it this way? Even atheists admit the universe is fine-tuned. Fine-tuned to a degree that's really hard to comprehend. Stephen Hawking famously said that if the expansion rate of the universe was different by one part in a thousand million million a second after the Big Bang, the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies. And he was an atheist. Now, he's actually underestimating, according to Hugh Ross, the famous uh, Christian uh, astrophysicist. He's underestimating that expansion rate, fine-tuning. But even at a thousand million million, whatever he said, one part in a thousand million million, that doesn't happen by chance. And by the way, chance is not a cause. When scientists use the word chance, it's not like they're attributing whatever whatever uh, cause or let me back up. It's not, it's not like they found a cause when they used the word chance, okay? Chance is a word we use to, de- to describe mathematical possibilities. There's no causal force out there known as chance, right? I, I mean, if I flip a coin, you're, I'm going to say, well, what are the chances it's going to come up heads? You're going to say, well, 50%, right? But does chance cause it to come up heads? No. Chance just covers our ignorance. If we could predict with precision, the amount of force I put on the coin when I flip it, how high off the surface I am, the wind velocities, or you know the wind currents in the room. We could predict with absolute precision how it's going to come, come out. But chance doesn't cause it to, to come up heads or tails. Chance is just a word we use to cover our ignorance. So when scientists use the word chance, what they really mean is uh, we don't know. Okay, Chance doesn't cause anything. The real option you have here for the fine-tuning of the universe is design. It, someone designed it to be that way. And by the way, you can't make any evolutionary argument for the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe because the expansion rate is part of the initial condition, the initial expansion rate. The expansion rate did not evolve to that expansion rate or the, the speed didn't evolve to that speed. It started that way. Well, it seems to me the same being that created space, matter, and time is the same being that created the expansion rate to be precisely what it needed to be so we could be here. That makes the most sense. And there are other fine-tuned aspects we'll get to after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Crossexamined.org is our website. Back in two minutes. Frank Turek with you. Hey, I want to mention that uh, next week I'll be at Summit out in Colorado. For uh, those of you that uh, go to Summit, young folks, say between the age of 16 and 22, go to Summit. Great place to send your young person to get worldview training and uh, Christian apologetics. Summit.org. Check it out. Obviously, you won't be able to join that meeting next week, but there are seven throughout the summer. I think they're probably in week. They're probably in session three maybe right now. There's a few more sessions. There's also a session out in Jackson, Tennessee. I'll be at this week as well. And then there might be one in coming up in Pennsylvania. Anyway, go to summit.org. You can figure that out. 
Then next week, next Saturday, I'll be at the Reveal Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. My friends Dan and Stephanie Eichenberger run that. Uh, great. They're CIA graduates, by the way, the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. Uh, they, uh, they put on a great conference there in Louisville, Kentucky. Go to our website, crossexamined.org. Click on events. You'll see it there. And then the following week, July 3rd, I'll be out in Indianapolis at the Church of God in Christ Missions Conference. It's going to be a great group there. Looking forward to that. So all those details are on our website, crossexamined.org. Crossexamined.org. Just click on events. And then next month, in well, net, net, the month after that, August, we're doing the, the Crossexamined Instructor Academy. I think we're probably filled up at this point. I think the deadline has passed to sign up. Uh, for the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy, you go to the website to uh, learn if that's exactly the case. I think it is. But uh, if you don't get in this year, we're going to do it again next year uh, in August. We do it every August. So check that out as well. Okay, we're talking about the big questions in life. We're talking about why is the universe fine-tuned. Another aspects of the, uh, aspect of the fine-tuning is the fact that the gravitational force is fine-tuned. If it were altered by one part in 10 to the 40th power, there would be no Earth to live on. One, one part in 10 to the 40th power, what is that? That's one part in one with 40 zeros following it. Now, one part in one with 40 zeros following it, you say, Frank, I can't get my head around that number. I know, neither can I. Let me give you an illustration. If you were to take a tape measure and stretch it across the entire known universe, which, by the way, friends, is a very long way, and you were to set the gravitational force at a particular inch mark on that tape measure. Now, I realize gravity is not measured in inches, but this is just to give you a scale idea in your mind. If the strength of gravity were different by one inch in either direction, across a scale as wide as the entire known universe, we wouldn't be here. That's what we mean by a fine-tuned universe. That's what 1 in 10 to the 40th precision is. Now, that's not even the most precise of the factors about our universe that are designed. I mean, the cosmological constant is, is apparently fine-tuned to 1 in 10 to the 120th power. By the way, just to give you an idea of the size of these numbers, what's the difference between 10 to the 119th power and 10 to the 120th power? 10 to the 120th power is 10 times bigger than 10 to the 119th power because you're adding another zero. I mean, this is mind-boggling. you know how many atoms there are in the universe? About 10 to the 80th power. This is... there (laughs) There are fewer atoms in the universe than the number by which we describe... The fine-tuning of the cosmological constant, the force that is keeping the universe accelerating. I mean, it's the, the probability is zero, ladies and gentlemen, that this is caused by chance. Well, again, chance is not a cause, but it's, it's that, that it would happen with, without a known cause. Now, this seems to be designed, the same spaceless, timeless, immaterial being that brought the universe into existence, that created space, matter, and time is the same being, it seems, that put the gravitational force and the cosmological constant and 
all these other aspects about our universe that put those just where they are. If they were any different, we wouldn't exist. There'd be no universe. Now, what? how have atheists responded to this? Well, they've come up with all sorts of crazy theories like the multiverse, that there are other universes out there. Now, there's no evidence for these other universes. You can't observe them. It's just a way of trying to avoid the idea that there's a designer out there. It seems to me that a, d- a designer or a designer is still necessary, a creator is still necessary to create all these other universes if, in fact, they do exist. Why, why, why do they posit these other universes? Because what they're trying to say is, well, if there's enough universes out there, we'll just happen to get a universe like this where the uh, conditions that are required for us to have life here are happen just happen by chance. In other words, it's just the luck of the draw. You know, again, chance is not a cause, but you get their idea. You know, if you multiply the possibilities, maybe you'll just get one without any design necessary. Now, that just seems to me, and to even some agnostic astronomers, like just a desperate attempt to avoid design. In fact, that's basically what uh, Paul Davies said, the guy we discussed last week, the uh, agnostic astronomer from uh, University of Arizona, or it's Arizona State, one of the two. Um, he said, it's just a dodge, the multiverse. They just don't want to deal. And he's not a believer. He's just saying they just don't want to deal with the fact that this place is designed and it appears to be designed for a reason. You know, there's got to be a designer out here. Now, he he doesn't he does. He's not saying it's God. He's just saying there's some kind of design out there. What causes that design is the question. So the multiverse doesn't help. In fact, even one of the greatest proponents of the multiverse, a guy by the name of Alexander Vilenkin, who famously said, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is now no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. That guy, that guy who said that in his book, Many Worlds in One, which was a a book that tried to say that there maybe are other universes out there. Even Vilenkin admits that if there are other universes out there, all the universes together would still require an absolute beginning. So it seems to me, not to him, he's an agnostic, it seems to me that if it requires an absolute beginning, it requires an absolute beginner. So even if the multi-universe theory is true, you don't get rid of the need for a creator. So atheism doesn't explain this, why the universe is fine-tuned. Even skeptics like the late Christopher Hitchens said, this is probably the best arguments that the Christians have or the, or the atheists have. How do you explain fine-tuning? Now, I think there are other, maybe other arguments better than this, but I said, I, I agree with Hitchens. It's quite good. Uh, another question that is a big question in life is, why is there reliable cause and effect? This is related to the question we dealt with last week on why are there laws of nature? I mean, in order for us to do science, we have to rely on reliable cause and effect. Well, why don't things happen willy-nilly? Why, 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 why believe, or why believe, we observe that things don't happen willy-nilly. We, we observe that things happen by cause and effect. But why? Why do they happen by cause and effect? We just take it for granted that they do. This is not a random universe. It, it seems to, it seems to, to us anyway, reliably so, that things happen by cause and effect. They're not just things that happen without a cause. This 
gentleman Paul Davies I mentioned earlier, his this university is the University of Arizona. He said, all science proceeds on the assumption that nature's ordered in a rational and intelligible way. You couldn't be a scientist if you thought the universe was a meaningless jumble of odds and ends, haphazardly juxtaposed. Of course. And he goes on to say that that these scientists take the orderly laws of physics on faith, that's his word, and that these laws are, quote, all expressed as tidy mathematical relationships, unquote. Yeah, he's absolutely right. And so what's the explanation? What best explains the fact that there's reliable cause and effect, that this is an orderly world? It seems to me that the same being that created space, matter, and time, the spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent creator, is the same being that created the laws of nature and has created a universe of reliable cause and effect. If you didn't have reliable cause and effect, as Davy said, if it was haphazard or random, there'd be no way to do science. This is why... I've mentioned on many occasions that science actually needs a being like God. Why? Because it needs God to create a universe, and it needs God to sustain a universe with reliable, precise, natural laws that we can investigate in order to discover cause and effect. That's what you do as a scientist, to try and discover cause and effect. Well, the question is, why is there cause and effect? Because there's a mind behind the universe (laughs) that created and sustains the universe. Also, do you ever think of this question? Why is there such a thing as evidence? Atheists are always saying, well, I'm trying to follow the evidence. But follow the evidence where it leads. Well, evidence again, and all these questions are related, by the way. Evidence again presupposes that things happen in an orderly, rational way. And that you can discover truths about the real world by looking at cause and effect and taking your conclusions as evidence of how the universe actually works. Again, this presupposes at the fundamental level, at the metaphysical level, which means beyond the physical, at the immaterial level, that someone has put order into the universe and sustains an orderly universe. That just seems to be presupposed by these atheists without any explanation. If you're going to follow evidence, why is there even such a thing as evidence? We couldn't even discover evidence without order. And random would mean nothing unless there was order. Atheists have said, well, these things happen by random processes or in a random way. You wouldn't even know what random was unless you knew what order was, and you wouldn't even know what order was unless you knew what... Unless there was an orderer behind it. Again, what, what's the best explanation for this orderly universe with evidence and reliable cause and effect? A universe that's fine-tuned, where it has reliable, consistent, persistent laws of nature. It seems to me there's a mind behind it all. These are questions that atheists ignore, it seems. Or they brush off by saying, oh, it's a multiverse. Well, that still doesn't explain it. Follow the evidence where it leads. Well, why is there evidence to begin with? (laughs) You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek. Our website's crossexamine.org. By the way, if you have any pushback on any of this, we've got a new email address. You can email me with questions or comments. It's easy. Hello at crossexamine.org. 
hello at crossexamine.org. So if you have a comment or a question you want me to address on the air, just send us an email to hello at crossexamine.org, and I'll take a look. All right, back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Friends, I've had the opportunity to interact a little with a new friend of mine by the name of Max McLean. I don't know if you know who Max is. Well, you probably do. You just don't know who he is, perhaps. Because if you listen to the U version of the Bible, the NIV version, you hear the voice of Max McLean because he narrates the entire Bible. In the beginning was the word. You know, I mean, he, he can enunciate very well. Anyway, Max is also an actor and has his own... Um, production company called Fellowship for Performing Arts. Fellowship for Performing Arts. Uh, if you if you Google that, Fellowship for Performing Arts, uh, you'll see what he does. He does a brilliant one-man C.S. Lewis play. He's also now touring uh, and producing a play called Martin Luther on Trial. And these events are coming to a city near you. And I want you to go see these things because they're fabulous. In fact, Max and I are going to probably do... We're, we're looking into doing some of these events on college campuses where he'll do his C.S. Lewis play night one and I'll do I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist night two. Uh, and we're about to uh, do some fundraisers to pull this off um, because it costs a lot of money, obviously, to do these productions. But he's also doing them at cities, not on college campuses, but in cities, and you can pay to go see these. And here's some of the cities he's coming to. Indianapolis, Charlotte, Atlanta, uh, the Los Angeles area, Chicago, Columbus, Santa Fe, Asheville, uh, Boston, Detroit, Phoenix, San Diego, again, uh, Los Angeles, and Seattle. That's all this year. And you're going to want to see these plays. So go to uh, fpatheater.com. stands for Fellowship for Performing Arts. You can see trailers on there. You can uh, see little clips of the uh, plays. And then you can... Get tickets right online there. So I just want want to uh, tell you about this because it's very important to combine the arts and evidence because a lot of times people are are brought in by beauty. In fact, I don't know who said this, but whoever said it was spot on. They said that beauty is the battleground upon which God and Satan fight for the souls of people. Beauty is the battleground upon which God and Satan fight for the souls of people. If you think about this, if you think about what you're attracted to, you're attracted to beauty. That's what you're attracted to. And you try and get beauty sometimes by taking illicit means to get it. That's called sin. We try and get good things, in other words, by taking bad paths to get there. My friend Jay Warner Wallace, as you've heard several times on this program, says every homicide he's ever detective, uh, he's ever uh, uh, investigated, he's a cold case homicide detective, every homicide boils down to one of three reasons why someone has been murdered. It's not a thousand reasons, it's one of three, sex, money, or power, or relationships, money, or power. And if you think about this, those are the three reasons why you do something illicit, why, why you might sin. You're trying to get good things, a relationship, sex, money, power. You're trying to get those good things, and you're trying to take a shortcut to get there. So those things are beautiful in their own right, but if used for the wrong reasons or in the wrong ways, can destroy you and destroy others. And that's when it becomes sin. And so those beautiful things can also be used to attract you to God because God is the ultimate source of beauty. 
And that's what Max tries to do through these plays. That people can be intrigued through the arts. So check that out, fpatheater.com, and go to those shows. We're going to go to the one in Asheville. I'm going to be out of town during the Charlotte one, but we're going to go to the one in Asheville and uh, bring some folks up there for that in August uh, because it's a couple hours here from Charlotte. So check out Max McLean, uh, fpatheater.com. Okay, back to the big questions in life. Uh, we were talking about uh, why is there such a thing as evidence? Why is the universe fine-tuned? Uh, why is there reliable cause and effect? Here's another big question. How did life begin? And Richard Dawkins, to his credit, the prominent atheist, says, well, Darwin has no explanation of life, and nobody really knows how life began. And that's certainly true, certainly from an atheistic perspective. There's, there's no explanation, naturalistic explanation, for how life could begin, because every possible scenario to start life just ends in futility, from non-living chemicals to a living thing. There are too many things that would need to happen uh, in order for life to begin from a naturalistic perspective that don't happen. It seems to violate the second law of thermodynamics, that things go from order to disorder. They don't go from disorder to order without intelligence. Now, if you're going to say, well, look, if you're just going to say God did it, that's a God of the gaps argument. Not necessarily so. Why? First of all, you don't know if it's God. Just without revelation is what I'm saying. You, you know, if, if you don't look at the Bible, who created life? Well, you don't exactly know, but it seems to be that you've got positive evidence for intelligence. Why? Because things are put together in such a way that require intelligence. Probably the most prominent of this is the genetic code, the genome. In fact, I saw a story uh, just yesterday on the Internet. It was how some people who were stranded on a desert island were saved because they made a rock message on the beach with one word, the word help. And I guess some aviator saw that and was able to get a group there to rescue those folks off the island. Now, why did that one word help immediately let the aviator know, hey, there's got to be people down there that need help? He didn't say, well, you know, that could have happened by natural causes, the word help. No. Even one word, four letters, help, lets you go, that has to be intelligence. There's got to be an intelligent being down on that island that needs help because that doesn't happen by natural laws. Well, if help requires an intelligent being, then why doesn't a word that's millions of letters long, in our case, in the case of a human, billions of letters long. Why doesn't that require intelligence? Because every living thing has DNA, has a, has a genome, has a word, the longest word ever discovered. All the letters are in the right order. Why? Where do you get a software program like that? I don't know, but you know where I come from, wherever there's a program, there must be a programmer. Wherever there's a message, there's got to be a mind behind the message. Wherever there's a code, there's got to be a coder behind the message. This is not a God of the gaps argument. We're not arguing from what we don't know. We don't just have a gap in our knowledge. It's not, it's not like we just lack a natural explanation. It's that we have positive, empirically verifiable evidence for an intelligent being. When that aviator sees help 
on the beach, he doesn't just lack a natural explanation. He's got positive evidence that there are people down there. You see, so it's not a gap argument. It's not like, oh, if we wait long enough, we'll find a natural law for all this. That aviator wasn't flying over that island going, oh, yeah, if, I, it's, if, if we wait long enough, we'll figure out some sort of waves did that or crabs came out of the water and arranged those rocks that way. There's got to be some sort of natural explanation. No. He knows as soon as he sees help, there's got to be a natural or there's got to be an intelligent cause down there somewhere. The same thing is true when you see a genome. And even, even the smallest, most simple of creatures, which aren't simple at all, have genomes that are thousands or millions of letters long. That seems to require intelligence. Now, it doesn't mean you can say, well, it's got to be Yahweh that did that. You don't get that from one argument. You don't get all the way to Yahweh or the God of the Bible from an argument that says there's got to be intelligence you know, behind life. It could be the God of the Bible, but you don't know that yet. How could you discover if it's the God of the Bible? Well, you combine it with other arguments. You combine that argument with the creation of the universe, the moral argument, the fact that the universe is precise and fine-tuned. You combine that with the fact that the universe and everything in it is composed, so it requires an an uncomposed composer. You you do the act potency argument that Ed Fazer has brought into modern times out of Thomas Aquinas and and Aristotle in his book, uh, Five Proofs of the Existence of God, and these other arguments he gives in there. Then you add on the argument from the resurrection. By the way, we've had Ed Fazer on the program before. Go back a few months and look for the five proofs of the existence of God. You, you, then you look at the evidence for the resurrection and you figure out that Jesus really is God and whatever God teaches is true. And Jesus taught teaches the entire Old Testament as the word of God and he promises the New Testament. So now suddenly you've got scriptures which on the authority of Jesus appear to be true. And you read in Genesis that God creates life out of the dust and you go, bam, there you go. Now we're back to Yahweh. That's how you get to Yahweh. You don't get there with one argument. You get there by combining arguments, arguments that will show you there's got to be intelligence out there, and then there's got to be a creator, there's got to be a moral lawgiver, there's got to be uh, a sustainer of this universe, there's got to be uh, a force behind Jesus, or maybe Jesus is the force himself that can resurrect himself from the dead. And those miracles affirm that he truly is the Messiah, that he can restore what was lost. What was lost in Genesis can be regained by Jesus as the Messiah. That the four problems we have in life, sin, nature, sickness, and death, are solved by Jesus, who is sinless, can overpower nature, can heal sick people, and resurrect the dead. That's why the miracles of Jesus are in those four categories. He's sinless. He has power over nature. He has power over sickness, and he has power over death. Why? Because he's the Messiah. He can restore things from the book of Genesis. He can restore them because we, through our sin, have introduced sickness and death into this world and made this world a dangerous place. Jesus can fix all that. He's the Messiah. That's why he does. That's why he lives a sinless life. That's why he, that's why he has power over nature. That's why he can cure the sick and resurrect the dead. So, 
big question. Where? How did life begin? It, be, it, was, it, it was begun by God, right out of the dust of the earth. Well, I got about 20 more big questions of, in life. We're going to have to take this up again next week. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Don't forget I'll be in Louisville next Saturday at the Reveal Conference. Check our website for that. Any questions or comments, write me. Hello at crossexamined.org. See you next time. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.